If you would go ahead and stand and we'll uh, read scripture this morning. As you're preparing for that, if you could, uh, we're going to be reading from two different sections. We're going to read uh, Hebrews chapter 2 and then Psalm chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 2, the entirety. Therefore, we must pay much close attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, every transgression or disobedience received just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the word to come, of which we are speaking, it has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made for him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while has made lower than angels, Name Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the foundation of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have but one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God has given me. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to a lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that helps but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. If we'll turn to Psalm 8, we'll read the entirety of that. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! You have set your glory above the heavens, and out of the mouth of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen. Also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, and the fish of the sea, and whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. May be seated. Good morning. Hopefully, you know, as you heard, just heard Psalm 8, that that probably, for some of you, uh, reminded you of of a song. The Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name, right? Um, Wonderful psalm. We'll get into looking at some of that here in just a moment. But as a prelude to our text here in 
Hebrews 2. We'll be looking at 5 through 9, just looking at 5 through 9 as we continue our study here on anchored in someone better. That someone better is who, church? Jesus. That's who, that's who we're hoping and desiring to be anchored in um, as we look to uh, this year ahead of us. So uh, with that in mind, let's pray. Let's go to the Father and pray. <clears throat> Father, we are grateful that you are mighty, that you are awesome in the true sense of the word. You've set your glory in the heavens. You've made us in your image and you've given to us a grand purpose for being here on earth. And we see from the beginning, even back in Genesis 1 and 2, that your, uh, your plan, you had a perfect plan for us. And we also see how quickly man turned aside from his perfect beginnings. Sin entered the world through one man and death came through sin And thus death spread to all men because all sinned, the Bible tells us. You had a plan for mankind from the beginning. And that plan was marred by man's disobedience, by man's sin. But I praise you, Father, that your plan involved redemption. Buying back what had been lost, that it might be restored to its rightful place as you intended. Your perfect plan intersects with us here today. And the text points this out and provides hope and comfort for us today in the midst of a world that's largely hopeless and hurting. Father, we ask today that you would speak through your perfect word. And I pray that your Holy Spirit uses this word to raise the spiritually dead back to life. And I pray that it would point each of us back to the anchor of our soul, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that it is in Christ alone that our hope is found. I pray that we would remember this lamb of glory, this spotless, sinless one who came and died and atoned completely for our sins. Father, remind us of that today even as we hear your word being preached of who this Jesus is. And remind us, as the Hebrew writer is reminding us, that we are to listen, to pay more careful attention to listen to this son of yours. May we do so yet today. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, there is, within the circle of uh, preachers, uh, it's oftentimes uh, said, uh, saying, you may have actually heard this, but really they, uh, preachers in many ways hold up two specific uh, standards or ideas as, as we think about the word that's being preached on any given Sunday. And that word has to do with comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comforted. As you think about a preached word, many of the preached messages fall into one of those two categories. Comforting the afflicted or afflicting the comforted. And already in the book of Hebrews, we've seen this to be true. In Hebrews chapter 1, we've seen laid out before us an explanation of the Son, showing us in verses 2 and 3, seven things about this Son 
who has spoken to us in these last days. And the writer goes on then in verses 5 through 14 to explain five reasons why the Son is superior to the angels. And his reasons, note, are all rooted and grounded in the scriptures of the Old Testament. So in chapter 1, the writer, in showing forth the brilliance of the Son who has spoken, is comforting the afflicted. And this comfort is much needed as the primary audience finds itself in the midst of both internal and external persecution. Internal from the Judaism crowd, desiring them to conform to the traditions and rituals set forth in the law. The external from the Roman emperor who, on the timeline of history, were right around 64 AD, the time when Nero was persecuting whom? Christians. So we see that there's both this internal and external persecution, pressure that's being applied to this group of people that the writer of Hebrews is addressing. For the Jew who has come out of Judaism and received Christ as Lord, there's this great tension that's taking place. And I'm sure the question is being asked by some, is the truth of Christ worth it? Is it really worth it in light of the persecution that's coming upon those who profess his name and walk in his truth? Some are are wavering on turning back. And in the midst of the wavering, the Hebrew writer provides this much needed comfort. In chapter 1, that comfort is established by identifying this son. To this point, he's been identified as the son. Today we're going to see he's actually going to be identified by the name Jesus. Jesus is submitted for the first time in the the book, here in the text, when we get to verse 9. He's going to show how it is he's superior to the angels. Remember, we talked about this a week or two ago, about the comparison, the better than the angels. And the angels were... At some level, we don't know the specific details, but they were held in high regard by the Jewish people since they were somehow involved in the mediation of the law that God gave to Moses. We know that through a few scriptures, one in Deuteronomy. We know that through Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7. He makes reference to that. We know that through Paul's writing to the, to the uh, folks in, in, in Galatia. He mentions that the angels were a part of the mediating process. Then we get to chapter 2 and we see a strong warning is sounded. And in case there are some who feel comfortable where they are, not wanting to embrace the Son and listen to what the Son has to say, the writer now exhorts the people to pay more careful attention to the things that they've heard from the Son. And his words are not necessarily comforting words here in the first four verses of chapter 2. Words of affliction. They're words that deliver, here's what's coming if you continue living your life in this direction. They're words that send a wake-up call for neglecting so great a salvation spoken of and embodied in the Son. He says, neglect the Son and that trajectory leads you to an eternal Affliction of the soul. 
And the call and the cry is don't drift away, friends. Well, the verses here in Hebrews 2, 5 through 9, they didn't swing back in the other direction. They serve as a great comfort for the troubled soul. The text is continuing the big picture of Jesus being better than the angels. That will carry forward all the way through the end of chapter 2. But one other highlight in this passage deals with man and his intended role given to him by God. Man's intended role given to him by God. Understanding what God had in mind for man from the beginning and seeing how sin intersects with his original intention for man and also seeing what God did about that sin to restore man's rightful place with him. Now, verses 5 through 9 teach us a great deal about God's original intention for mankind and open our eyes to the impact of sin in our lives and the broken fellowship that resulted when sin entered the world through that one man. The Bible says that one man is Adam. Reference in Romans 5.12. The comfort from the text is overwhelming. In fact, I found myself this week as I was studying this and just in tears, overwhelmed at some of the things that this is speaking of. You know, reminded again as I was reading this, reminded again of the abundant grace that's available to us. That what God did for us in Christ, and there's not a one of us here deserved it. Not a one of us. It truly is an amazing grace, friends. This is an amazing grace that God gave to us through his son. You know, as I was reading this, I realized with with new eyes, there was fresh eyes reading this this week. And just how wonderful that this all is. To have this great salvation given to me. By God through his son, Jesus Christ. And what we on our own could never restore, could never regain, God did through his son. And it's comforting to know that God hasn't given up on us after sin comes into the picture. Isn't it? Isn't it great to know he just doesn't say, forget it. You're done. I had this plan and it was a great plan and you messed it up. Sorry, you're done. Praise God he doesn't work that way. And the text today is going to show us how a lot of those pieces all intersect and intertwine in terms of God's original intention for man, our sin, and what God did about that. O'Brien in his commentary as he's prefacing this section of text he presents two questions which I think are very good questions to think about at the beginning of this passage what he calls two underlying issues he says if Jesus is the son as expounded in the first chapter why is his rule not complete and obvious to all that's the first question he asks and the second question he asks is does not his humiliation that's Christ, as the man who suffers and dies, make him inferior to angels? 
Those are good questions to ask of the text. And I believe questions that will in part get answered here in 5 through 9. If you'll look with me at verse 5, if you have your Bibles, if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open them and look. Listen, we, we are changed and renewed and transformed by the power of his word. We need to make sure we're in his word, that we're looking at his word, we're listening to his word. I want to encourage you in that. Verse 5, for he, who's the he? We've got to go backwards in the text to figure out the he. The subject is back in verse 4, God, okay? He, for he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. Now, it's important here to ask another question of the text. As you're reading this, perhaps one of the questions that comes to mind is, what is meant here by the world to come? The world to come. Is he talking about life after death? Is he talking about a millennial kingdom reign? Is he talking about new heavens, new earth? What's he talking about? The world to come is the reference point of the writer's concern. He says, God, he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. Context, I believe, and and the same word for world here in verse 5 of chapter 2 is the same word that's used in verse 6 of chapter 1 for world, ukumene, which has in mind an inhabited world. Not your general word that's used for uh, a cosmos is a probably more familiar word for world. This This is a different word. It's speaking of an inhabited world. He's not put this inhabited world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. It seems as though context would draw us to the millennial reign of Christ, a reign that will see man in a different light, animals in a different light, plants, nature, all around us are going to be seen in a different light. You can read a little bit about what that is in Isaiah 35. It describes some of those changes that will occur at that time. The word world here is is used in a way to help us identify and understand that what he's talking about here, this inhabited world, this inhabited world. When we read verse 5, there are two other questions perhaps that ought to come to the surface here. If God has not put the world to come in subjection to angels, then who else would be worthy of such a position? And where we'll see this is going is he's pointing to the Son, right? There's another question that comes out of verse 5. What is this verse saying about the role of angels in this present inhabited world in which we live? The writer is speaking about the world to come. That's what he says. He's not subjected. He's not subjected, not put the world to come, of which we speak in subjection to angels. Well, what about the present inhabited world? Is not this present world in subjection to angels? What do we know about Satan? Is he not a fallen angel? And we see in the scriptures, if we just look and do some some, some study, we see in John's gospel, Jesus himself is talking about this ruler of the world In 1231 of John, this now the ruler of this world will be cast out. John 14, verse 30, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. And he has nothing in me, Jesus says. 
Ephesians 6 verse 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places, the angelic forces. We see also in 1 John 5, 19, he writes that we know we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway or control of the wicked one. The present inhabited world. We see references also in Daniel 10 of the servant of the Lord strengthening Daniel and mention of Michael, one of the chief princes, one of the chief angels. He's ministering on God's behalf in Daniel's life. And so we have Satan, who's a fallen angel, and he holds current sway over this present inhabited world. That being said, we also know from the Bible that his time and control here is limited. Revelation 12, verse 12 says, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows he has a short time. He knows that. He knows he has a short time. The fallen angels and the angels that are doing God's bidding as ministering spirits. There's this ongoing conflict at work going on in the heavenly places, but getting played out in the present inhabited world. And understanding that conflict in this present world ought to help us grasp the significance of Ephesians 6 when Paul calls the church to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. You see, the Lord has equipped his saints with a spiritual armor of protection against the onslaught of the evil one in this present world. He's provided all that we need to stand against him. Shoes of peace, a helmet of salvation, a breastplate of righteousness, a shield of faith, a belt of truth and a sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and prayer. He's given to us everything we need. And what we need to understand from the Scriptures is that the evil one holds sway here in this present inhabited world for a time. But according to Hebrews 2, verse 5, God has not put the world to come, he says, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. Subjection is a word that comes from the military. It has in mind to place or arrange under, to subordinate. And God has for a time put this present inhabited world in subjection to angels, but the world to come, that's the world that's being addressed by the Hebrew writer. That world to come is not subjected to the angels. So if he's not subjected the world to come to the angels, to whom then is he subjecting it? That seems to be the question that's begged from verse 5. If not angels, who then will the world to come be subjected to? This world to come is going to be arranged and coordinated under whose direction? Just as a side note, as the writer of Hebrews 2 is talking about the world to come, I was reminded how often we fail to think much, if any, about this world to come. We're so consumed and concerned about this present world. As a citizen of heaven, 
Paul says that we are to be eagerly waiting a Savior. We are to be thinking and looking for the, the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he writes in Titus. Friends, do we think much of the world to come? Do we live our days solely thinking about what's here in this world? That's one of the reasons I love the old hymn writers. You know the old hymn writers? When you look through the hymnals of the old hymn writers, you know what a majority of the hymns were about? Heaven. They were singing about heaven. They were thinking about heaven. They were thinking about being with Jesus. We have lost much of that. Just a side note. But I do think it's important to at least express it. See, he's writing here and he's making a statement that this world to come, it's the subject matter of what he's speaking of, the context, the world to come is not. He's not put the world to come in subjection to angels. He's stating that very clearly here. Look at verse 6. But one testified in a certain place, saying... Now, this is sort of an odd introduction, isn't it, to what follows in the rest of 6 through the early part of verse 8. If you search the footnote in the margins, you'll see that the Old Testament passage that's quoted here in Hebrews 2, 6 through 8, comes from Psalm, what? Psalm 8, right? If you turn to Psalm 8, you'll notice also a reference to David being the writer of this particular psalm. Okay? No surprise to us. So why does the writer of Hebrews say, but one testified? And why does he simply mention in a certain place as opposed to saying, I pulled this from the Psalms? Now these are two pretty good questions. I don't believe for a moment that the writer who is moved by the Holy Spirit, remember, I don't believe that the writer is ignorant of such information but instead is wanting to point his listener, what's been the objective to this point? Pointing the listener to the Son. Pay more careful attention to the Son. And he opts here to leave out David and to leave out the Psalms. I believe what he's saying is this. All of Scripture points to the Son. I think that's what he's getting at. I think that's why he leaves out David. I think that's why he leaves out reference to Psalms. One testified in a certain place. Remember the basis for what comes in verses 6, 7, and 8. The basis. The writer has stated as fact that God has not put the world to come in subjection to angels. The present inhabited world is subjected to angelic influence, but the world to come will not be so. Now, what comes is a reference to Psalm 8. So let's turn to Psalm 8 for just a moment. In Psalm 8, that's where we get these verses here in Hebrews 2, 6, 7, and 8. In Hebrews, excuse me, Psalm chapter 8. The psalm begins and ends in the same way, doesn't it? O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And we see that the psalmist here speaks of the Lord who has set his glory above the heavens. 
Beginning in verse 3, then, I want to point your attention to the question. It's the precursor to the question in Hebrews 2. He says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained. And then he goes on and asks the question. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels. That word for little can have in mind just as the way it's worded here in the text, a little lower. It can also have in mind little in terms of uh, brevity of time. Uh, You have made him for a little time lower than the angels. Okay, Some translations actually bring that forward um, in the text. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You've made him have, to, to have dominion over the works of his hands. You've put all things under his feet, all the sheep, all the oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea. And so as you look back then at Hebrews 2, 6, 7, and 8, you notice that the reference to the psalm begins directly on the question, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? The writer of Hebrews is taking us back to the creative order, God's original intentions with mankind. And Psalm 8 points backward in the scriptures to Genesis chapter 1. When God made the world in six days, remember? Rested on the seventh day. On day six, he made man in his own image. If you have your Bible still open, turn back to Genesis 1, the first page in your Bible. This ought to be an easy one to find. Page 1 in your Bible, Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. God said, we're in day 6 here now. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male And female, he created them. Our world needs to hear these words today. Amen? Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I've given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. See, God's original intention for mankind was to rule and to reign over all things on the earth. He was to have dominion, to steward all the animals, the plants, the fish that swim in the seas. They were created and subjected to man who was created in God's image. And the psalmist, in light of all the big things that God made prior to man in day six, he asks the question, how is it, how is it that you could want anything to do with such a small, insignificant object as man? How is it? How is it possible? And yet you read the psalm and you see that God has subjected all things 
under his feet. And the scripture in Psalm 8 is providing the backdrop for God's intentions with mankind. That though they were relatively small in comparison to things like the sun, moon, and the stars, pretty big, pretty vast. They were created in his image. And in addition to that, they were given authority to rule and to reign on this earth. So I want you to hold on to that. Psalm 8 is exalting the glory of God in his creative work, the pinnacle of which was creating mankind. Day 6, a man and woman, both made in the image of God. Now read the next sentence in Hebrews chapter 2. By the way, just as another side note here, verse 6 in Hebrews 2, the reference to son of man, um, son of man here referencing humankind. It's, a, it's, he's, it's kind of a... Um, Offshoot of what he just says in the first part. What is man or the son of man? That reference son of man, we also know that to be a, a, a name of divinity, right? Son of man. Jesus himself referred to himself as the son of man. Psalm 8, as we're going to see, while it's talking about God's original intention with humankind, I still believe also that it's pointing forward that there is going to be a son of man in Christ Jesus, the one who was going to come. We're going to see some connections between this reference to point to Son of Man. We're going to see the, the role of the Lord Jesus here in this and how this intersects with man and his original intentions. This gets very good as we keep going in 8. The last part of 8. For in that he put all, that's God, God put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. That's man. It's sort of an emphatic way of just saying nothing, there's nothing that he didn't put under him in the original. Okay? He's pointing us back, wanting us to see all things were put in subjection to man. According to what we just read in that Genesis account, which Psalm 8 makes reference to. He emphasizes this by saying he left nothing that is not put under man. And we read this and there seems to be a present disconnect. And that's probably where we're at right now. We're probably reading this and we're seeing this disconnect between God's original intent with man and his current state. (laughs) Right? There's a a present disconnect. We see that. We feel it. (laughs) The writer goes on. Look at the last sentence of verse 8. But now we do not yet see the key words. Now we do not yet see all things put under him. Now points to the present reality. Now. And yet points to a time yet it's coming. We don't see it yet. One of these days we will. So what we have is a statement of fact in verse 5. God has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels, pointing immediately then to the scriptures, Psalm 8. The writer is quick to reference God's original plan for man, which pushes the rewind button back to Genesis chapter 1 and God's creative handiwork. Mankind was created in God's image, crowned with glory and honor. Man was, was crowned with glory and honor by simple fact he was created in the image of God. 
He was given authority to rule and reign, to have dominion over all things. And up to this point, it almost seems as though the writer of Hebrews is making a statement that the world to come is going to be held in subjection to mankind. Once you get to the end of verse 8, though, the picture starts to bloom and blossom. You begin to see that what once was in the Garden of Eden as God created things is not the present reality for mankind. And if you know your Bibles, you know that one chapter after the creation accounts of Genesis 1 and 2, just one chapter later in Genesis chapter 3, the perfection of man in the created earth receives a mark. That mark we know as what? Sin. Sin. And sin came into the inhabited world by one man, the Bible says, Adam. O'Brien says in his commentary that there's this great disparity between man's position as ruler and his present lack of control over creation. He says at present, he's referencing this phrase, at present we do not yet see everything subject to him. But the resolution, he says, to the problem is surprising. The language of Psalm 8 in reference to mankind at creation. Made for a little while lower than the angels and crowned with glory and honor ultimately points to the humiliation and exaltation of Jesus. Listen, he suffered death as the prelude to and the ground for God's exalting him. That's good. That's good to know and to be able to see the connection here in the text. MacArthur, in his commentary, he describes this process. I love the way he describes it in terms of what happened to Adam after sin came on the scene. He says, when Adam sinned, the earth was corrupted and he immediately lost his kingdom and his crown. Because all mankind fell in Adam, Romans 5.12, because he lost his kingdom and his crown, we do not now see the earth subject to man. The earth originally was subject to man and it supplied all his needs. Then, tempted by Satan, man sinned and his tempter usurped the crown. And there you see the change in the chain of command. Wow. You see all of what's been going on? All this stuff has been happening and going on. And the writer of Hebrews is pointing back to Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 seems to be pointing to Genesis 1 and 2. And even trickling into Genesis 3 and the effects of what happened in Genesis 3. And it's pulling all of this together. And he's helping, the writer here is helping us understand as he's addressing this world to come. He's wanting his listener to understand who's going to be in charge of this world to come. It's not the angels. I want to make it very clear. He says, not the angels. And to arrive at the answer, he's pointing at God's original intention for you and me. He begins there. Because you see, you and me, we have a connect point with this one the Hebrew writer calls the Son. And he's wanting us to understand where we fit in, where we connect to the Son. He's wanting us to understand how much more we need to pay attention to what the Son has spoken Because he wants us to see what the son has done. Here's what he's done. So the passage in 1 John 5.19 is really true. That the evil one currently holds sway over the present inhabited world. But the message of the scriptures 
is also true that God's son has spoken, has come down to earth, has paid and atoned completely for the sins of his people. He willingly gave himself on the cross. He was buried and according to the scriptures, he was raised three days later. The tomb could not hold him. He ascended and now sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 1 verse 3. So the son not only spoke of this great salvation, but took upon himself in the flesh the necessary payment for salvation to occur. A perfect offering had to be made, friends. And sin had marred all mankind. So God reconciled the world to himself through his son by means of death on a cross. We need to really solidify this. He died. Jesus died. God's son died. Sin demands payment. In an Old Testament language, the sin offering had to die on the altar. Payment wasn't made without death. So the writer of Hebrews is noticing the discrepancy between what God originally intended for mankind and what man's current state is. It's marred with sin. And as a result of sin, we do not yet see All things put under him. Listen, sin can easily entangle you. We'll get to that a little bit later. It easily entangles each one of us. It can cause you to think less of yourself than what God does. Than what God originally had planned for you for me when we get to where we are wallowing around in our sin when we get to where all that we're thinking about and looking at is the sin in our life and we can't get beyond the sins of our past the testimony of the scripture here this morning is that God made you in his image that alone ought to lift our, our spirits a little bit He made us in his image. He made man to rule, to reign, to have dominion over the things here on this earth. And some of you might be here today and you might be saying, but I don't feel like a king or a queen over anything. When I look at my situation, my situation seems hopeless. I feel pretty small here. I, I feel pretty insignificant. I don't really feel like my life matters a whole lot. The text says otherwise. Look where the writer turns in verse 9. Almost like a declaration right out of the chute in verse 9. But we see Jesus. We see Jesus. Who was made a little lower than the angels, or was made for a little time lower than the angels. That's also true, right? For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by there it is, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. But now we do not yet see. That's the end of 8. And verse 9 says, but we see Jesus. You know, there's a lot of things we might not see yet. But friends, I want to tell you this morning, 
if you, if you, you know Jesus and you see Jesus and you see what Jesus has done for you, you're going to be all right. See, Jesus himself is the deposit, the promise of what's to come. And if you see Jesus, if you know Jesus, if you believe, let's use the terminology in the scripture, if you believe and receive in this Jesus, you have the guarantee of life to come with him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the first reference right here in verse 9 to Jesus. And, and I think it's important that we understand for the Jewish listener, this would have been quite a statement. Remember, Jewish audience. The Messiah is submitted to the listener as the one whom the psalmist points to as having been made for a little time lower than the angels. Reference to incarnation. Think John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. One writer says that whereas the height of exaltation for man is being made a little lower than the angels. That was the height of our exaltation. We were just a little, made a little lower than the angels. It was for Jesus the depth of his humiliation. Think about that. Jesus stooped to reach down to the height of man's glory. There's a connection between the suffering of death that's referenced in verse 9. The suffering of death and crowned with glory and honor. Those are connected phrases. See, this Jesus who came down to earth died on the cross, and it was through his death that he is crowned with glory and honor. Psalm 8, if you remember, places the glory and honor upon man as God's creation made in his image. How is it that man is crowned with glory and honor? It's by nature, in fact, that he is created in the image of God. But Jesus, the Son who comes, and His suffering, His death, He's crowned with glory and honor as He comes to rescue us through dying on a cross. It's through His suffering of death that God exalted Him and gave Him the name that's above every name so that every, every knee would bow, every tongue would confess at the name of Jesus Christ that He is Lord. That's Philippians 2. The writer of Hebrews introduces Jesus into the mix, showing how it is that he is superior to the angels and showing how his life and death intersects with man's original plan for living and operating in this world. He was meant to rule and exhibit dominion over the things in the earth. That was the plan for mankind from the beginning. Sin entered the picture and brought death, and death spread to all men because all men sinned. Death, though, listen, death was defeated when the Messiah came. The spotless lamb of God we talked about when we partake of the bread and the cup this morning. The spotless lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He died, but death could not keep him in the grave. That's how Paul can say, where, O oh, death, is your sting? Where is it? Corinthians 15, wonderful resurrection chapter. Friends, death now, because of Jesus, is no longer to be feared. He died 
and rose again and ascended back to the Father in heaven where he awaits now a second coming. His first visit began God's reconciling of mankind to himself. And he accomplished that through the cross. And the sin that had produced death and brought fear was overcome in and through God's son, Jesus. The suffering of death that's referred to in the text happened for a reason. Look at the end of the verse in verse 9. That he, or in order that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. It is by the grace of God. And if it's by the grace of God, you know, we think about why, why would a holy God want anything to do with sinful man? Why? I love the lyric of one of the songs I listened to. It just simply asks the question, I don't know why you love me, but I'm so glad you do. I don't know why. Scripture here gives us a reason. It's by his grace that this happened. By his grace. Grace is unmerited favor. It's getting something that you don't deserve. Anyone here ever gotten something they didn't deserve? Huh? You ever get something you didn't deserve? You didn't earn it? You didn't work for it? Somebody just gave it to you. It's been said that grace is God's riches at Christ's expense when all you deserved is a curse. It's by grace that you've been rescued. It's by grace that you've been saved, the Bible says, and that through faith, and that's a gift. That's not of your own doing. That's Ephesians 2, by the way, if you want to look that up. Jesus came and he suffered death at the cross in order that he might taste death for everyone. He might taste death forever. What's that all about and why is that so important for us to understand? Remember Adam? Adam was our first representative through whom sin came into the world. I'd like you to point and see Jesus here. Look at Jesus for just a moment. He's what the Bible references as the last Adam. Romans 5, 17. In fact, if you read Romans 5, 12 through 21, it's wonderful, it's rich. But I'll just read verse 17 of Romans 5. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, that's referencing Adam and his sin. If one man's offense, if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive what? Abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign. Listen to the terminology, will reign in life. Through the one, Jesus Christ. When the text says that he suffered death in order that he might taste death for everyone, what's meant by tasting death? You know, some of us, when we think of tasting something, we think about gently putting it up to our lips and trying to figure out if it's really something we want to continue tasting, eating. That's not the idea, though, of the word here. The idea of the word has in mind not simply to die, tasting death, but to experience death in its full horror and humiliation. Stedman in his commentary, he writes and he says that the son, this one Jesus, he comes under the penalty of sin in order to remove it. The emphasis here is that what Jesus did through his death and exaltation was for 
listen, this is important. It was for everyone. He says, salvation is now open to all. No one who comes to Jesus will ever be refused. His death was for everyone in the sense that everyone was thereby rendered savable. <laughs> everyone is rendered savable. There is not anyone here on planet earth unsavable because of what Jesus did. Listen, he says, ever since the death of Jesus, the way to glory has always included a death which leads to life. That's good news. That's good news because, you know, the Hebrew writer, I'm sure he's writing to a group of people who are feeling insignificant. They're feeling pressed. They're feeling the tension. They're feeling like walking and wavering from the way of truth in Christ. And he's trying to help them understand. Don't go that way. Don't go that way. And here he's, he's, he's put right before them in verse 5, this world to come. This world to come. It's not going to be in subjection to angels. The Son, Jesus, is the one who's going to be ruling and reigning. And he's also encouraging them and helping them understand that regardless of how you might feel right now in this present inhabited earth, you are going to, if you are in Christ, reign with him. That's good news. That's God's original intention way back in Genesis. And God's restoring it. Through his son. So once again, I believe he would say, pay careful attention to what the son has spoken. There's one name under heaven whereby we must be saved, right? We were made to reign and rule and sin interrupted the original intent of God's handiwork. However, God is not finished with us yet. Praise God. And to prove that, he's already secured. He's already secured our position as kings and priests with him in the world to come. How do I know that? The Bible says, God in his rich mercy, Ephesians 2, because of his great love, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved raised us up together, made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. See, positionally, we're there. It's already, it's already happened. How many times in the Bible does he already talk about something happening? It's already happened. It hasn't happened yet. But you can bank on it. You can be assured. It's happened because God said it. This is the way it's going to be. Now, we don't see all things yet. Elsewhere, the writer says we see but dimly here, don't we? One of these days, we get to see Jesus. Look forward to that. Look forward to that. MacArthur says the ultimate curse of man's lost destiny is death. But then he says the cross conquered the curse. And he goes on, he says, to accomplish this great work on our behalf, Jesus had to become a man. He himself had to be made for a little while lower than the angels. To regain man's dominion, he had to taste death for man. Because listen, if a man dies for his own sin, he's doomed forever to hell. But Christ came to die for us because, listen, this is so important. He came to die for us because in his dying, he could conquer death. 
He could. He's the only one who could. Revelation chapter 5, 9 and 10. There's some singing going on in heaven. Listen to what they're singing about. They sang a new song. Here's what they were singing. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. There was only one worthy to do that. Why is that? It says, for you were slain and you have redeemed us to God by, what means? By your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And listen, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Friends, this is good news. I'd like to just conclude, if I could, maybe asking the question, how, how is this text intended for us perhaps to be understood? Maybe just some, some handles as takeaways here. I feel like maybe before closing, it might be helpful to give a couple, two or three here, just in closing. For those here today, perhaps feeling insignificant, feeling little on the face of this earth, discouraged, defeated, hopeless. I want you to know that your connection to Jesus, your union, the the, the biblical word terminology is your union with Christ. Makes all the difference. For if you are in Christ, and you have been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20, if you are in Christ, if you've been crucified with Christ, you can know that death has no hold on you. You can know the joy of what it means when Jesus says in John 5, crossing over from death to life. You can know that if you are in Christ Jesus. There may be some of you here who are fearful of death itself. I would want you to know that Christ has gone before you. He's called the forerunner for a reason. He's gone before you. He's experienced the humiliation of death on a cross. But he didn't stay dead. The tomb three days later was empty. We sing about he arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. He didn't stay dead. Your death is coming. But it need not be fearful. Instead, we can rejoice and long for the day when, as the Hebrew writer says, we see Jesus. Long for the day. We can think about the day. We can be citizens here in these United States and also be citizens of our heavenly home. We can live with an eye toward that day to come. Death has no more sting because of what Jesus accomplished at the cross. And it will hold no sting in your life if you believe in the Son and receive Him as the one who paid sin's penalty in your stead. And lastly, for those who maybe this morning are feeling disqualified because of some sin or some way of living that haunts you. It's in your past and you know it's there and it keeps popping up and it keeps popping up and it keeps popping up. Some particular sin in your life. Listen, the world to come is put in subjection to the Son. And we must listen to what the Son has spoken. He has opened the way 
through his death on the cross for all mankind, men and women, young and old, regardless of your past offenses, he has, through the cross, provided the only means for mankind to be saved. And perhaps it would be good to consider the means by which you're saved today. It is by God's grace. You can't do it. There's not a one of us here that deserve it. None of us. And yet he's chosen out of his great mercy and love Isn't it interesting that he's loved you with a cross? While you were yet a sinner, in fact, Christ died for you. Receive that good news by faith. Accept it as true for you today. Embrace those words by faith. Kent Hughes, I'd like to personalize one of the things that he says about this passage because I think it's such a great takeaway for all of us. Christ on the cross is the measure of your worth. Christ on the throne is a prophecy of your significance and sure dominion. I'll say that again. Christ on the cross is a measure of your worth. Christ on the throne is a prophecy of your significance and sure dominion. You see, friends, God had a plan and sin entered the picture and marred God's perfect plan. But God is a restorer. He's a rebuilder. He's a rewarder. And through the cross upon which his son Jesus died, he began to reconcile us back to himself. And so we are left with in Christ alone, our hope is found. He's the one to whom all things are subject in the world to come. Therefore, Jesus is better than the angels. Therefore, pay more careful attention to what the Son has spoken. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in this good news. It's a word of comfort, truly is, to know about this world to come, to know who's in charge, to know what you are doing, to know what you have been doing, what you've been orchestrating throughout the years. And Lord, we look around us and we see that this this world seems to be getting worse, seems to be getting more wicked, seems to be getting more perverse. But Father, if all we're looking at is the things here in this present world, Father, it's going to be gloomy. We're going to walk around with our head down. We're going to get frustrated. We're going to get bitter. We're going to get angry. Father, my prayer for this body is that we, as the Hebrew writer says here, we would be a people who see Jesus. We're looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith, The one who ran the race before us, he completed it, he finished it. It's by your grace that you've tasted death for everyone. That doesn't leave anyone as an exception. 
You've tasted death for everyone. Not only everyone in, in a chair here in this building, but everyone we encounter, everyone that we meet, everyone that we walk by on the street. You've tasted death for everyone. You've made it possible. You've opened the way. And Father, those of us who are in Christ, I believe there's an, imp- there's an obligation now as we understand your word. There's an obligation to be sure that since you've tasted death for everyone, there's no inner circle here. But Lord, you've given to us your spirit to witness to Jesus, to witness to this Jesus who tasted death for everyone. Oh Lord, I pray it would be upon our lips often to speak of Jesus, to talk about him, to talk about the wonderful grace of Jesus and how it saved us and how it can save others too. We rejoice in your word and give you thanks for the son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.